Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to This Must Be The Gig. I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and I'm currently in an amazing studio in the middle of Greenpoint in New York City. (laughs) New York. On location. Shifted recordings. Shifted recording studios. Yeah, we're getting the best (laughs) thumbs up. (laughs) And here with me in the studio is engineer and producer Adam Kibble. Hello. Hello. I, you know, I won't take the engineer credit today. I'll just take producer. Yes. We've been helped very ably by the wonderful engineer, Chetta. Hey, how are (laughs) you? I hope they heard that. Maybe they did. Far more talented than I can ever hope to be. Absolutely. On the board. He's been amazing, and it's such a pleasure. But why are we here in New York? I think that's we important to go We are here over. in New York. Thank you for, for reeling, reeling me in. We are here to cover Red Bull Music Festival. It is a month-long festival that happens also for a month long in L.A. and Chicago. Where else, where else did he mention? All around the world. And today I have Adam Shaw. He is a, he's quite a remarkable worker and he said that it never stops and you'll hear the conversation soon he is the head of programming for red bull music and the director of its u.s events so and US canada and canada yeah and can- cannot forget you. canada cannot forget canada so i have him on the talk today and we just chat about all of the events that happened over the last two weeks it's now. been two weeks two weeks to go so we talk about Hype Williams. They had an amazing panel with him at the AMC in Times Square. We chat about Tristan Perich, who we also have on the bill today, and I'll talk about him in a moment. We chat about... Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte, who's 91 years old, and they did a whole panel with him last week as well. Basically, the entire concept is based on what the Academy has always wanted to do, which is bring unique spaces and unique sounds into a city environment. And And unique ideas. Can't forget that. And I think that, what was your favorite so far? I really was obsessed with that Dream Machine performance. We'll talk a bit about it later in in the chat, but a bunch of legendary musicians from Throbbing Gristle, from Liturgy, from 
Mr. Bungle all coming together to get noisy and uh, basically replicate what it feels like to be asleep. Fuck shit up. Yeah, it, it was, was great. unbelievably intense in the best possible way. And to say that obviously Red Bull Music Festival is one of the most courageous branded events is really not an opinion. It's fact. It is something that I think over the past five years, and this being at sixth, so they've had in the past, they had Solange at the Guggenheim. They had Anani, Georgia Moroda for the first year. They had FK Twigs chat with uh, D'Angelo. They had Brian Eno. I think that their entire model is something that you don't really see among other festivals. And to call it a festival is kind of, I don't know how accurate that is. It's, it's a show. It's much more than that. Mm. Yeah. And the legacy of their innovation kind of brings us to why we chatted to Adam especially and also one of the performers uh, who had one of the most amazing shows last week Wednesday. I came into the city just a a night too late so that's why the only reason that wasn't my favorite performance I wasn't (laughs) able to see it but you were and it sounds incredible. It was at the Cathedral of St. John Divine which is 125 years old And so immediately before you're walking into the space, you are already told how to feel by the building itself. The architecture is uh, quite something and you will just stay tuned because Tristan chats all about that. And also considering space, both Adam and Tristan speak about spaces in a way that I think is very important for music in 2018 is to consider the space that you're putting music on and consider how you are putting music on and in what way. Yeah, it's space physically, environmentally, ethically, Mm. culturally. It's uh, just very thoughtful. I hope you enjoy the chat. Here is Adam Shore and Tristan Parrish. of Red Bull Music Festival in New York with yet another diverse program of original events, world premiere shows, live radio panels and incredible musical icons that we'll talk more about in this episode. And we are live with the the main man. Can I call you that? <laughs> the main man? No. Let, let's think of another title. The Adam Shaw. Hello. Uh, hi. Um, thank you for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, so you are the head of programming for Red Bull Music and the director of its US events. Is that the correct title? Correct. Is that what you call yourself? Titles are important nowadays. Titles change all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I am really lucky to be able to oversee the, the festivals, the live programming that we do in the US and in Canada. So earlier we were chatting a little bit about you being in the midst of this festival, but also planning the month-long festival in Chicago. And the five festivals we do here in this in North America is um, only part of what we do worldwide. We do another 11 festivals. We do um, three weeks in Tokyo and three weeks in Sao Paulo. This, week, this year we're doing four weeks in Berlin. We do a week in Istanbul and a week in Sydney and... Uh, a week in Cape Town and a week in um, Oslo and in Zurich. Um, so the the way that we started doing events in New York City, mm. which in 2013, which is to make sure there's a story behind every show, to 
make sure that every show uh, is an original idea or mm. an original concept or a, or a premiere or an original collaboration. And we try to do these events in non-traditional spaces and spaces that don't normally host music. So you mm. automatically, if you're a, a really diehard music fan, which are a lot of the people that come to our shows, you already come with an open mind and a clean slate and fresh mm. expectations. And that's the model now for all of Red Bull music all over the world. When you're starting to plan the festivals in New York and all over the U.S., how much do you liaise with them in terms of not overbooking or not booking the same? Like, how the, how do you do the scheduling of it all? At the heart of every festival is that it's a festival for the city, um, to reflect the city, to use the city as a as a playground, as a to explore venues in the city and neighborhoods in the city where. Maybe music is from, but mu people don't often go there to listen to music. Um, and uh, we, you know, as long as we're really rooted in the identity of every city, then each festival is going to have its own complexion anyway. Mm. And as I've noticed, even though in a lot of ways it would be great to take an original idea that we say have developed in New York and bring it to the other festivals, the 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 people I work with in those cities they they want everything new and exciting and <laughs> brand new. Uh, L.A. doesn't want New York sloppy seconds, no, so we need to create an sure. original program for L.A. every time. Yeah. But it's 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 really exciting. I mean, where it is now, at least in this kind of programming booking um, space, is that we are constantly. You know, it used to be we spend the whole year putting together the New York festival because that was that mm -hmm. was the main festival. Mm -hmm. um, now that we're doing festivals every three months, um, now we are able to continually come up with ideas and every time a great idea is you know comes out, then we have a place where we can put it. And if it doesn't work out for this time, it can it always can work, work out, out for another time. city or another mm -hmm. year. I mean, it, the New York festival this year, we're I think we're exactly at the halfway point and mm -hmm. every single event – was something that we started working on either for the L.A. festival or last year in New York or the year before or the year before. Like nothing ever right. happens the second you want it to. Yes. Um, but uh, we're lucky that things wind up, you know, as long as you keep doing doing the work, um, these these things mm. wind up getting and onto, it happens onto in the its stage. right time. Yeah. I suppose. There's it's always the right time. Great music can e be exactly. presented anytime, and it's but perfect. I especially feel like looking at the past, and there's a lot of unique venues and unique spaces. All those little things and those moving parts together. I can only imagine how ridiculously difficult that is to plan. <laughs> We certainly decided straight off the bat when we started developing the first idea six years ago that, you know, there isn't there isn't sort of a natural place for an energy drink to do events <laughs> yeah. in the music ecosystem. You know, that doesn't really make sense. And what was, you know, I, I've lived in the city most of my life, and I think that the best venues and the best promoters, the best talent comes through here every year. The best music experiences of my life have happened here. And the important thing when we started was to make clear that we don't want to compete 
with all of the people here. You know, like mm. I, I love the promoters here. I love the venues here. They helped make me who I am. And so the last thing I want to do is do a kind of show that they would normally do. It's a because, direct competition. Yeah, because yeah. I don't want to compete with them and neither no. does neither does the company. You know, we're their, their accounts and their partners. We work with all these, all, all these teams. Mm. But also it just doesn't seem like, it just seemed like the only natural place for us to be is to do things that could never happen normally. So... That's been the kind of guiding frame for the way we've approached the programming is simply that if this is the sort of show that would normally happen, we shouldn't do it. If this is the sort of place where uh, – the sort of venue where this show would normally happen, then we should do it somewhere else. Mm. That carves out a lane for us. And then as far as like the – when we first started the festival in 2013 – we were doing a lot of multi-artist nights that were uh, that were around a sound or a label or a time in music history. Like one thing that just comes off my bat, yeah. like, off top of my head, is the first year we did a show called "The Roots of Dubstep" because okay. dubstep at that point had already come over to the U.S. Mm. and been completely destroyed by you know brainless producers in the U.S. and everything yeah. that was really great about UK dubstep when it first formed in the mid-2000s mm. um, was no longer what dubstep sounded like. And those kind of nights that the genre was uh, – that created the genre, they never came to the U.S. before. So we did an event where we brought over a lot of the key early dubstep DJs and the assignment was that they could only play tracks that came out between – 2003 and 2006 so it was really the window into what those clubs would have sounded like if you happened to be at you know forward in london Mm. at the time Mm. it's really almost an editorial framework at the way we look at shows you know we we want there Mm. to be a story behind every show we the the festival came out of the red bull music academy which is a musician education program that we've been doing for 20 years and uh we 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 feel like the the best thing that could happen at one of our shows is if you go to our shows mm. and you have a you have an amazing time and an amazing experience, but you also learn something. Absolutely. And think about why that show happened and why those artists were put together and um, maybe learn a little bit of history of, and, and make some connections. So that's really what the program was for the for the first couple years. And then in 2014, I'd approached FK Twigs. She had just released a handful of yes. singles and the videos were spectacular. And I asked her if she would be interested in doing a visual show at the Zigfield, which at the time was New York's biggest movie theater and the most gorgeous old school movie theater. And I just thought her images were so amazing that I hated watching them on my phone or my computer. I wanted to see them on the Live. biggest screen in New York City. Yeah. Um, and she was intrigued but not ready because she was so focused on making um, more more videos more music, and finishing her yeah. record. And then she came to us with an idea and she said, you know, I have this idea for a uh, for a show. It's called Congregata. Every song has its own choreography. Every song has its own costume design. Every song has its own stage design. Every song has its own lighting design. It's somewhere between a, a concert and a dance piece and a piece of performance art. Oh, sounds and, just like it. And it was too – It was it, the idea was too incredible to pass up. And even though we Absolutely. had never done anything like that before, um, we wound up doing three nights. We sold 6,000 tickets. The shows were spectacular. And then – a strange thing happened, which was never part of what our model was, where artists 
were coming to us with really ambitious it's, ideas. It's unheard of, really, that it switches. It's usually coming from the festival, right? The organizers. Right. Well, in a way, actually, the festivals book the artists to do the shows that they're currently doing. You know, seems like in the last the few years, yeah. people like, you know, this year at Coachella, like Cardi B and definitely Beyonce took a huge opportunity to create something that they've never done before because they had the platform of Coachella. But mm. for the most part, if you're an artist and you have a really ambitious idea, you know, you're your, your label can't really pay for that and you don't want to pay for it yourself. And it doesn't and you always... don't know if you have the audience as well. I think that that's also a huge part of it. So I love that you're saying artists are coming to you with these big ideas that they couldn't normally do elsewhere. That's the best it, you it want, is, really. I mean, that's what amazing. the Academy is there for. It's amazing yeah. that this happens. And so, um, so we did this with Twigs in 2015 mm. and then... Um, the next year, Anoni came to us with an amazing idea. She is and then um, not long after, Bjork came to us with an amazing idea that we uh, wound up doing with her in our Montreal festival. And then St. Vincent came with this amazing idea. And, and then we started realizing that we love doing these large-scale, big, ambitious ideas. Oh, and then last year for the New York Festival was we did a piece with Solange at the Guggenheim mm -hmm. with 75 performers and dancers. And, you know, doing these oh, things are – You had Georgia Moroder as well. That was in the first year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love him. Um, I think I interviewed him that actual year. He was yeah. doing a lot of – a lot of the rounds. And I mean, but again, to get such an icon and all the people that you mentioned now, just to have those big names in such intimate settings. So I think that's also a thing that I'd love to chat about is that the these artists aren't coming to a big festival with endless, you know, capacity with thousands and thousands of you you have it in contained areas. There is that intimate feeling. At least that's what I felt being here and seeing the shows. Mm -hmm. I love how it's it started off great already. So like <laughs> usually a festival has the kinks and I'm sure that that's happened with you. Was there any artist that you have still yet to chat to? There's lots of artists that we are continuing to talk to. And, um, you know, it seems that a lot of times when artists work with us, it takes a lot of time and effort. You know, normally most artists, you know, you're you're in this you're you're in this headspace of recording, promoting, making videos, yeah, going cycle. on tour, and then and then making another record. And when we approach artists, it's always okay. You do that, but what's something that you really want to do? What's your kind of dream idea? I think a lot of artists sort of run their careers like they're recording artists or touring artists and not artists. Just and artists can learning. do anything yeah. and should be able to have the freedom to explore. And, you know, so when we sometimes when we approach artists, it's like, well, are there any choreographers you want to collaborate with? Are there any set designers? Are there any filmmakers? Are there any fashion designers? Because usually when you can create that sort of collaboration, then new ideas form immediately. Uh, so because these ideas wind up being pretty ambitious, we wind up always working with artists out of outside of their album cycle when they actually have time to develop something and rehearse and build something original. Which is even more unique. Again, that's yeah. something that no other festival... Or even outlet, it's very difficult to get an artist when they are in that break. That that's their like sweet spot where you shouldn't be, <laughs> you shouldn't be even tiptoeing close to them. So the fact that you get them during those times, it makes it even more relaxed and more as if they are servicing 
the idea of art as mm-hmm. opposed to just the cycle, and, which but, is really And amazing. yet this year's festival, a str- an interesting thing happened where um, artists that we had been talking to for a while were ready to commit to doing ambitious ideas with us, right. and it did correspond with their album campaign. And so in that way, we were able to not only do something on the side, but really collaborate with the label and the label's marketing team and the label's promotion team. We helped um, you know, uh, support their video efforts and other things so we can all kind of tell the story together. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we can provide a lot of value to the kind of traditional music industry in that way. Um, but I yeah. like what, I, one thing I like what you said about um, the intimacy because it's interesting. It's I think that happens not only that doesn't mean that we do everything in small venues. In fact, no, I'm, I'm kind of it's definitely. Thank you for clearing it up. It's definitely not in small venues yeah. by by any means. And in fact, I'm sort of. I, I think this is something that brands do a lot, which is like mm. you get a big artist to do an underplay, and people can't get in, and it's super exclusive, and that's what makes them cool. And I think that's incredibly uncool. Yeah, I, you don't want to. The last thing you want to do is alienate the super fans. So, um, but mm. but I think I think the way we're able to create that sort of intimacy is to you know we don't just produce a we don't just put the artist on the stage we really build a venue around the artist and an experience around the artist and these are conversations we have with the artists a lot and I think in the way that that winds up getting communicated to the fans the fans are already have an idea of what to expect Mm. and they're just committed like they know they're at something a little bit different and a little bit more special. And I, I'm especially this year, I've been really just amazed at how committed and focused the audiences have been. It's really gratifying. It's I mean, I found it more close to home because of all the festivals that I cover in Europe. You know, people will shush you. Like even you mentioned <laughs> Anony earlier. I was at Primavera a few years ago. People were shushing each other because she was on stage. You respect your artist. And I do find that the culture here, it, it is a party culture. There isn't much space anymore. Again, as we were saying, people have the right to tweet and take photos of themselves. You know, selfie sticks are still roaming the streets. Mm-hmm. They're still out there. Dream Machine, we can talk about, for example, they played, it was a 14-piece collaboration, mm-hmm. you want to call that? Yeah, musicians from all different it genres who have never collaborated before, and we it kind of magic. created a band. And that that felt that they needed audience participation because they needed you to to know that there are strobe lights, there's loud music, you need to put, you know, earplugs in, you need to... Lie down on the floor. Lie down on the floor. There was all these visual movements projected across the the ceiling. Talking about space hype, that chat last week was Mm. at the AMC in the middle of Times Square. This is with Hype Williams, the greatest video director there's ever been. And that was... That, that was one of the greatest panels I've been to in a while because he was not only self-deprecating, which is an emotion <laughs> that I love. Um, he gave he just gave us so much. He gave us much more in even just a sigh or a movement. And I think having them on that stage at the AMC in Times Square mm-hmm. was a hugely New York moment. And he was speaking so much about 90s and that whole culture that felt so East Coast. Mm-hmm. Do venues contact you? Because now that they know what you're doing, do you try and seek out the coolest possible places? Oh, I wish venues would come to us. <laughs> yeah. um, well, this is you know, two uh, venues. You know, this is the sixth year, so we've done something like 150-something shows in New York City, and we 
we really try never to repeat a venue. There's so many incredible places in New York, and there's this thrill of taking people to a neighborhood they've never been to before um, or a venue they've never been to before and being able to kind of transform the space. I think it's hard to have, you know, I mean, you know, I've gone to see shows at you know, Irving Plaza and Bowery Ballroom my whole life and now at Brooklyn mm. Steel and but and they're at great venues and um and they have great booking, but it's hard to have an original experience in one of those spaces because the stage is there and it's gonna sound like this and you can right. only do so, so much you know with what the to lights. Expect. Um yes. and it's okay. really fun to be able to it's just really creative to be able to reinvent a space. Um and 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 you can even do that in a non traditional in a in a traditional venue. You know, we did um you know, we, we, we vote, you know, we love output. It's the, you know, it's a great dance club in, in Brooklyn and we, um, and they have an incredible sound system, but, you know, and, and it's not like we could put the stage in a different place or rearrange the sound. I mean, that is a fixed place, but what we could do to make that space sort of feel new is we did a all noise and power electronic show there. So it was the most aggressive, um, uh, uh, intense kind of noise show. I mean, we had Mersbau, who's the greatest noise yeah. artist ever, play <laughs> Output, and so we. J- so if you have been to Output a hundred times, that is a way that you had a completely different experience in Output. But you run, you run the tinnitus or the tinnitus. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Tinnitus, here. yeah. Tinnitus. You. Yeah. So I actually spoke to Brandon last year. Oh, great. About that because obviously he suffers from it as well, and mm-hmm. I was doing a whole thing linked to Baby Driver, mm-hmm. and so. I thought that was fantastic that instead of you guys going into the, this terribly awful topic, which like is just like it makes you think of old people. And the truth is obviously it affects so much of us. Yeah. And I did the, the last week's episode is all about that. Hmm. And it was amazing because he was saying how the two of you just embraced that. You just instead of putting on a really quiet show to respect, to, you know, tinnitus, you put on these loud noise I mean I find I find that the 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 older I get and you know I've I've you know I've been going out to see live music you know my entire life like at this point the only time I can have like an like a like a a really um you know, if I, if mm-hmm. I go out, I don't really want to be entertained anymore. I can be entertained on my couch. I have a lot of Netflix to watch. Um, I have little kids. They're incredibly entertaining. <laughs> Very entertaining. Um, if I go out, I want an experience. I want to feel the music in my body. Mm-hmm. I want to walk out of there, uh, you know, hurt a little bit. I want my <laughs> ears to hurt. I want my eyes to bleed. I want like, I want an experience and, and, um, stomach to invert and, and then explode. And, yeah. with, and with Brandon, I was, uh, you know, uh, before I started with the um, Red Bull Music Festival, I was doing a, a, a metal series on the side called Black and Music Series, where mm. I was doing a lot of um, black metal and doom uh, shows. And Brandon had his show No Mercy. He was doing a lot of metal shows, and we were friends. And what we found was that all of these electronic artists we liked, or even these kind of electronic composers, that they were um, – that they all like loved metal and grew up in metal and they really wanted to do more aggressive sets. And so we provided with the Tinnitus Music Series a little platform for them to um, go extreme. 
and it was super fun. And it seemed like we were, uh, like like a lot of things, it seemed like no one was really doing that then. Mm-hmm. And now lots of artists are doing that and lots of venues are doing that. So that's why we're doing fewer and fewer shows because we don't really need to anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I love that you that you were doing that. Was music always a part of your life? Was this always something you wanted to be involved in, at least from the industry aspect of it? Did you ever think you'd end up you know, with a brand behind you and an academy as well that does what it does. Yeah, I mean, my route went through uh, record stores to record labels to artist management and then um, uh, working with brands on their music programs and um, and and having my own concert series. And um, it's uh, – it, I feel like in a lot of ways – I have continued to do the same thing my whole life, but the music industry just completely changes all around me. I mean, in the seven years I was working at record stores, if you told me that they wouldn't exist, I, I wouldn't even know what that means. <laughs> and, and and record labels, you know, I worked at record labels for 15 years, and it's a completely different experience working at record labels now than it was in the 90s. Mm, of course. Um, and, uh, you know... Um, I feel, you know, I feel really fortunate in a way to to be able to work with a company that is so supportive of so many different styles of music. Mm. You know, like we could be working with the biggest, most popular artists in the world, um, and that's what most brands do. We mm. could be working with only the coolest artists of the moments because that's what most brands do. But instead. We get to work with ninety nine point nine percent of every the entire mm. every, the entire world entire history of music that no one is really doing things with and um, it's exciting and and I also have to say like you know when you work in the music industry your budgets are based on you know how much money you make from the music pool, and absolutely. luckily Red Bull has a different model for this and yeah. um, and um, you know. Uh, making money on these shows or the revenue that comes in from these shows is not really what this is about. And, um, we've really, uh, they've really invested in a really wonderful way in so many different musicians mm. and music communities and in and cities. And not making and the branding. Cause that, that is always an issue, right? That it, it spans across festivals around the world. There's no way that you can have a festival that doesn't have even a little bit, even if it's the local market, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's always going to be some sort of artist and, festival and you know retail space or brand available they're going they're always going to have you know a space there mm-hmm. but do you feel how how do you not make it cringy you know for how because obviously I, as a i'm part of the audience over the last week i barely saw i, I saw obviously there was red bull being given out but there wasn't big flashing lights or things like that so how much of the brand do you feel comfy with putting in people's faces? Almost? Yeah. Well, well, we, um, you know, we're all music fans first, and we were all going to shows our whole lives before this festival was a thing. So, mm. I, I think that we are overly sensitive to the real fan experience, and the last thing you want as a fan is to is for any kind of branding to get in the way of the show you want to see. Um, so yeah, we, we think about this a lot and we work with the artists directly to, uh, find out their comfort zone and, and, and how, how it works best into their stage show. A lot of times we create, um, one of a kind, um, pieces that are, that fit in with their, uh, with their stage design. A lot of times we hire the, 
artists who work with the bands, the bands mm -hmm. designers or the band set designers to help us create something that will work. But for the most part, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's less about like, you know, please drink the can because you enjoy the show. And it's more that, you know, I want people to know that if they enjoy this show, that this show is part of a larger festival and they may mm. enjoy some other shows. Mm. And um, I think it's really important that we, you know, that we're, we're, we're trying to bring so many different types of music to people in New York or people in L.A. and people in Chicago. And we want there to be a through line for them to know that um, if you like this Fever Ratio, we're going to be doing this reggaeton show on Saturday that's going to be amazing. Yes. And you yeah. may not you may not be into reggaeton, but you, if you if you enjoy this experience, you should give that show the benefit of the doubt because not only will it be amazing, but the music will be amazing and it could it could open up a whole new yeah, path to, so the to, focus to music isn't on the brand you. as such. I certainly didn't feel it, and I'm not just saying because you're sitting right next to me. I certainly didn't feel bombarded as much as I do even just walking down the street from like <laughs> everything and everyone. Obviously, you know we're 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 fortunate that the energy drink company. Um, a, a, gives so many resources, so many artists, and allows these these festivals to happen. Uh, we do want people to know that there's a strong association between Red Bull and music because Red Bull is committing so much to uh, to so many artists and uh, creatives in music. Um, but really, we just want people to know that if you that if you see a music event that's been created by Red Bull, that there's a level of quality there, mm. and there's a mm. level of um, of real creativity and passion that goes into not only what goes up on stage, but the entire experience mm, of going absolutely. to a show. Was there any show that was incredibly challenging to set up that you are like sitting, you know, almost leaning back and I should fan you with a palm fronds or something <laughs> because you're like, yes, I actually pulled that off. It actually happened. Is there anything? This year has gone so smoothly. It's, <gasps> it's eerie. It's wonderful. Right. We're, um, it's really beautiful. Um, what's interesting about a lot of the shows is that, you know, w with a lot of events, we are artists are debuting new work for the first time or creating new work specifically for the show. And that work gets developed over time and especially in the run-up to the show. So right. when we're finally at the show, we're hearing it for the first time in the way the audience is. And a lot of times we have our fingers crossed that yeah. it's going to be as great <laughs> as we well. hoped. Yeah. Um, and um, certain things have – certain shows this year have really exceeded even my highest expectations. And it's so – it's so extra gratifying that, you know, you, you you know that an artist like Tristan Purich is doing really great innovative work. You know that he has the ability to do things at much larger scales than he's mm. ever ever done before. Mm. And we give him an opportunity to do this. And then we just have to cross our fingers and hope it all works out for the best. And then when we're finally in the room and the performance is happening and it's so much better than I ever could have imagined. It's really, it's really such a wonderful thing. What's been your, because I know we're now in the middle, yeah. which is so difficult to ask. <laughs> and I know that you have children of your own, so I could never ask you which baby is better than the other. <laughs> but is there any show that you felt you were completely blown away so far? Yeah, the, um, the, we did a piece um, on Wednesday at Church of at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine uh, on the Upper West Side, which is the largest cathedral in the world that 
Um, most people that I saw at the show and I asked them had most New Yorkers had never had even never been, been there been before. Inside. It's yeah. spectacular. And, um, and Tristan, uh, Tristan Perch is a, is, is, is a composer and a sound artist and, and a mathematician and he builds his own speakers. And so he created a piece for 50 speakers, mm-hmm. which he programmed music through pulses and drones and crackles and then mm-hmm. 50 violins. And so really it's a hundred performers because each, uh, it's not like the same, yeah. Right. It's not like the same. It's not like the fifty speakers were all playing the same thing. They yeah. were playing fifty different things, and the the setup was so beautiful. The venue was so beautiful. The movement of all the violinists is so um, transfixing, and the music was just so clear. And you know, this kind of it's minimalism, but it's electronic music, and mm. it's done on such a large scale. And yeah, I found the whole thing to be really overwhelming. I just thought it was that venue. Was, I know that we were chatting a little bit about it earlier, but that venue was remarkable. It was something, and I know that even uh, the, the the man. I don't, I'm not sure what his name is. Who did the little speech before? Yes, the Deacon Daniel. Deacon Daniel. <laughs> yes. Even he mentioned how it's 125 years old, mm-hmm. which again, a, a lot of people don't even ever get the chance. Yeah. And if they do, it's usually with like a tour group or like on one of those double-decker red buses as a tourist. And it made you feel very welcome. Yeah. And I definitely think there was a level of respect. And also your scheduling is like, <laughs> the timing is really amazing. I know that you, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, but... I go to a lot of shows and they rarely start on time. (laughs) And the fact that like I got there and I sat down and it started a half an hour later was just. Yeah, we run a tight ship. Um, But also we work with, um, I think, I think, you know, when, when we finally get to it, the musicians themselves are, you know, they're not on the road while they're doing this thing. They've been working a long time for this particular performance and Mm. they're very determined and they're very focused. And, um, yeah, we, uh, uh, it, 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 it all, it, those kind of all, all the stars align on show day. And it's really, um, it's really a wonderful thing. So, and in terms of the panels and Mm -hmm. the talks, obviously you having these icons coming in, you never know how they're going to, you know, how it's going to pan out. You had Harry last week. Yeah, Harry Belafonte we did up at the Hostos Community College in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, he's 91 and, you know, he really is the entire history of the 20th century and and of uh, the, the, the model of how artists can be activists. And, um, you know, for 91, he still has so much passion and so much fire um it was really just so inspiring to really just be in the room with him but Mm -hmm. then to hear hear him um uh hear him tell his stories was really you know we're just so lucky (laughs) and the hype williams obviously we chatted a little bit about that earlier Mm -hmm. was there anything out of that talk that you felt you really didn't expect him to divulge because he said a lot of things. Yeah. He was talking about how Jada Pinkett Jada Smith Pinkett wrote California wrote. Love Video. Who knew? He says he's written every Who treatment knew? for every video ever. Except and then Jada her. Pinkett wrote California Love. Um, I, with that, like what's what's so amazing about, um, you know, we've done a handful of these talks now with um, 
with uh, visual artists. So we've been talking, we've been doing these couch conversations with Mm. film directors, not about their life in film, but about music in film and how they use music and um, how music scenes in cinema has inspired things that they've done in their work. And, um, and we've done talks with Darren Aronofsky and with Spike Lee and with Werner Herzog and Gaspar Noe and Edgar Wright. You mentioned Mm -hmm. baby, baby driver. We did Mm -hmm. a talk with Edgar Wright in LA. Um, And also with video directors uh, with Flores, Sigismondi and now Hype Williams and I think that nobody even ever thought firstly that he (laughs) where where has he been so people have been following him you know like Bailey with the movie and people have been following him along the way but you never expect to be able to sit and we it was a ginormous theater and I still felt like I he was talking directly you know it was really really again I'll use the word intimate there was definitely that uh, it was thought it was so well thought out. Why those events wind up becoming so special is because, um, you know, for the music video ones, you know, at this point, you either you've watched you used to watch those videos on your television and now you watch them on your computer. Mm. But to be able to see them in in huge on a huge screen with an incredible sound system um, is just so invigorating. Mm. And to be able to watch, say, like, you know, a scene from Malcolm X with Spike Lee right there is just it's incredible nuts. experience. And then yeah. when he explains to you the story about how he uh, convinced Aretha Franklin to write a song for the movie, you're just like, you can't, you can't even believe you get it to hear these stories. The, it blows the line <laughs> completely. And yeah. also they're speaking about people who you look up to as well. So the by association and by proxy, you're listening to all these, like he was just, you know, dropping names. Uh, Hype Williams was just dropping names and you're like, oh my gosh, but I love all these people. Yep. And they changed the face of music as well. So I think that you also have tapped into a larger ideal as you did last night with the self-care talk Mm -hmm. is that there's a lot around that about queerness in the industry about how you are perceived as a queer person but we do we do actually really do put a lot of thought into the frame around the show you know Mm. we we it's part of the just not wanting to do what everybody else does so yeah, yeah we could have done a talk with hype williams and that would have been fine but when you are specifically like you know here we're going to show a video and now we want and you to tell us specifically about, about that video then he was in agony you, i know <laughs> you, but then but then you 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 you've rooted the conversation in a place where he's talking specifically about that video but mm-hmm. he's also talking about the way he works and the way he works with artists and the way that these ideas come together and his and, process and, and his process absolutely. and i think when you're watching you know uh, you know, you're watching Biggie on a yacht, you know, you're thinking like, hey, it's Biggie on a yacht. This is great. And you don't think about the fact that like this is a five million dollar video and the pre and the pre-production took months and the uh, and the costumes and the extras. And, you know, it's like, you know, I, I do personally I, I think that. You know, I'm always in awe of musicians that mm-hmm. they're able to create something from nothing. Um, but so much of the music that they create and the music that we love is actually created by pretty small groups. Sometimes it's one person. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just – I think filmmakers are just – just make magic because they work with – they run these armies of people mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're able to get these incredibly – personal visions from their head up onto a screen Mm. and able to conduct all of these. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just in awe of them.
again, speaking about space, a lot of this has to do with the visual aspect of the artist performing. So just like you mentioned Tristan's work, you visually, that was something that you you don't get a chance to see up close. Mm. 50 violinists in front of you in the middle of a cathedral. In you the know, round. Because really, you could walk all the way around. And same with Dream Machine. Yeah. And yeah. same with Hype Williams. You know, That's people right. dancing in their seats and you're in like a movie theater, mm-hmm. you know? And the same with Fever Ray. It was at, you know, a big warehouse. Yeah. And so that's really considerate. But do you feel going forward, because obviously I love to be forward motioning. So do you feel that the future is looking different at all? Or are you going to just keep on going the same route? Like, well, what do you have planned? This is something that we are, that, that we've been experimenting with and something we really want to um, do a lot more going forward is that, you know, when we do, you know, we love these conceptual shows and these music history shows, but what what gives the artists that we work with the most value is to create these original works of art with one artist. Um, you know, as much as I've loved a lot of events we've done, the Solange event is mm. what people know us for. Mm. Um, and um, so – but what I don't, what I was really, what we always really think about is we don't want, you know, when we work with an artist like a Bjork or a Solange or a, or a St. Vincent, they're, mm-hmm. they've developed. They're already at a point where they've got a really established career and now they have the ability to go in a million different mm-hmm. directions. But, um, but a lot of younger artists um, that we really love, brand new artists, may not have the confidence or the space or the ideas or the resources to have that to come up with those sort of ideas. So what we've been doing is we've actually pivoted our creative process to where um, it's very strange as a brand to be doing this, but we now have an in-house creative director, um, art director, set mm. designer, and lighting designer. Oh, wow. And okay. so we, so when we work with an artist like, you know, we love Serpent with Feet. Um, I, you know, we've been, we've been wanting phenomenal. to do things, you know, we've yeah. been talking to him for three years, um, yeah. back before when he just had four sounds, four songs on SoundCloud <laughs> about doing something with him. And, um, you know, when he was finally ready, um, he had ideas in his head, but he wasn't like the way St. Vincent was, which is like, it's going to be like this. <laughs> this is my, this is my timeline. This is my budget. This is boss. it. Yeah. Just, I, I, and, and then she goes like, he had a bunch of ideas, but he didn't know how to how to put it all on stage. Mm. So we sit down with him. Our creative team sits down with him. He talks about his, his influences, his, what records he listened to when he was, what performances he loves, what clothes Mm. he loves, what opera he went to as a kid and kind of throws all these ideas at us. And then we create mood boards together and then we all build out a show together. And, um, it was, it's incredibly rewarding. And, um, the show was he just really was so engaging and so great he's such a great performer mm-hmm. and so um now we're 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 doing this more and more for all of our festivals where we're going to young artists that we love and helping them realize an idea in their right? head and create this own little work yeah. of art and that works hand in hand with the academy because i feel like that is the represent that's what the academy represents and yeah. i think that you cannot especially in a city as big as new york as big as la as big as chicago you cannot forget who is actually on the ground uh, building up the audience base to bring those Artist up is really, really important, as is community work, as is having a variety and diversity of your artists. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a – I'm glad to hear that that is obviously something that you'll continue to do. A lot of people don't know where to find new music 
that they can trust. Mm. So when you're putting an artist like Serpent with Feet, who obviously loyal fans have known for a long time, but his debut only comes out now, allowing people to discover artists next to, you know, Fever Ray, Harry Belafonte, all these big things, I think is is a really great association. So when do you stop? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We we never stop now. And that's what's so great that um, whenever we fall in love with a record, it's let's just have a conversation with the artist whenever there's um, a time or in music history or a sound or um, something that we feel like, you know, it's sort of like if you're if you're a, a music writer or a music historian and there's a story that you really want to tell that you feel like people don't know that you really want to put a spotlight on, mm-hmm. um, we can build a show around that. Also, it's great that the shows don't exist for us and, and, the, and the way that we work. Um, the shows don't exist, you know, in isolation. You know, mm-hmm. we have Red Bull Radio, which is a 24-hour day streaming radio station that uh, does really remarkable work on the air and, and works with, you know, just supports such great music and artists. And all the events that we do for the festival, they also create radio uh, hours and documentaries and interviews. So they're building mm-hmm. out context around it. Yeah. And editorially, we, we, we do a lot to support the shows um, and uh, uh, like short films and documentaries mm-hmm. and music videos. And, um, and then a lot of documentation, you know, we record all of these shows. You know, how do you create a show for more than the people in the room itself? Mm. And that's something that's that we're always kind yeah. of trying to come up with new ways for people to um, experience the stuff. It's true that there are – the gatekeepers don't really exist anymore. You know, I, I grew mm. up – you know, mm. I mean everything I liked from growing up, I learned about from MTV and Rolling Stone. And Watching those hype videos. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, I am that girl. That that was my childhood, the MTV age. That mm-hmm. was me. For the people who can't afford to go to the shows or the people who can't travel – um again having that feeling of being a part of something still yeah. is really important yeah we hope know? that by the all the context that we create around the shows that there's lots of ways in mm. and once you're in and if you like something that we do mm. then that's going to lead you to something else um and uh, and it's great so far <laughs> <laughs> you're like in the middle of it so i'm so we're always in the middle of it <laughs> wonderful well, thank you so much for being here and uh, enjoy the rest of your time uh, thank you and thank you for coming to new york and uh, and checking out some of these shows thanks for having me yeah. it's been amazing How many days? When was the show? The yeah, show was last Wednesday. Just a few yeah. days. Does it feel like forever? We're still in that. Yeah, sort of. It feels like just just yesterday and forever. Um, wow. It's definitely still in the afterglow. The resonance of that space, you feel like it just bounces around forever. I can imagine that it feels uh, like a little bit of a relief as well because the show was... Well, firstly, let's. Get, I haven't even introduced you. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Tristan. So tell me a little bit about your show last week. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, for Red Bull Music Festival, um, uh, I, I, I basically staged this really big piece of music. Um, 
it's uh, for 50 violins and 50 speakers, and it's called Drift Multiply, and we did it up at Saint, the Cathedral of St. John the That's Divine so here. beautiful. Which is beautiful, mm-hmm. huge. Um, it's such a tall space that, to me, and the pillars, the columns, everything is just so huge that you feel like you're walking through the land of the giants or something, <laughs> and some huge, true. like, yeah, amazing structure. And um uh, it's a piece of music that I've wanted to write for a really long time, like about mm-hmm. 10 years now, um, since I first had this sort of vision of doing this massive, oh, like wow. 50 violins and uh, alongside 50 speakers, which are connected to these really lo-fi electronics I work with. And, um, and so when, when Red Bull, when Adam Shore, um, uh, said, let's do it, I, like, I finally, wrote the piece i basically wrote it for this show oh and wow so okay because i know it was a once it's the premiere is it a once off hopefully not you, oh, yeah um, yeah no it's a, but it is the premiere that's the most okay. you know the most meaningful and it's sort it's the kind of piece of music that bounced around my ideas and i as an around my head as an idea for a really long time and you're always waiting for the right presenter the right space uh and 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 then once that was confirmed then it sort of needs to become a reality. And so I really, I wrote, even though the idea for the piece has been around for a long time, it was really Mm. created for this, for this show. Did you, did you know where it was going to be? Did they tell you that it's going to be in the cathedral? Yeah, I think, well, when he, when he first expressed interest in doing it, um, we weren't sure yet. And, and then the cathedral came up as an idea and I thought that sounded fantastic. And, um, uh, Leslie Flanagan and I shared the bill and, um, she was also fantastic and what a great way to start the show as well, to have something like that. Yeah, totally. Set the tone. Yeah. And she, she's my wife. And so we, um, like she's known about this piece I wanted to do for forever. And, um, I think our, our work dances around similar ideas. So I was really happy to be able to like share the stage. Well, you know, two separate projects but mm-hmm. likes to share the evening with her in such a big capacity and like and yeah her her piece totally I totally blew my mind because it's these it's so pure it's so small she's working with these sine wave oscillators very mm-hmm. very very simple technology um and basically just doing these like sort of volume transformations on that and singing mm-hmm. and, and her vocals were also really restrained in a mm-hmm. re- very beautiful way there wasn't it wasn't uh, her pacing was really great i think <laughs> she, if that's her, the right way of saying it but <laughs> pacing is the word like yeah her, <laughs> yeah. her sense of pacing is, is just immaculate yeah and it fills that space and and for me the experience was thinking about how sound fills space and um it's interesting. So she, interesting. A lot of people don't consider that as well they don't think about the space uh, they think about the space as just a complement to, or maybe just a you know separate to what they're doing, and the fact that you worked with the space. I haven't seen something like that before. Um, did you? How did you shift and change things yeah. once you got into that space? Well, for me, I, well, we we did a site visit a number of months ago mm. where we kind of we went there, we thought about the sound, we listened, and. Um, and yeah, the, the, the space is a major part of how she and I both think about performance. And it's not just the physical acoustics. It's also the context of the event, obviously, like presenting something with Red Bull Music Festival has a context yeah. and an audience. And, and that all kind of goes into this, 
this work of music, which is an experience and it's also music and it's mm -hmm. also like an intellectual space, like thinking about sound and space. Um, uh, and yeah, it's hard to, it's, in, in my mind, it's hard to say exactly how it influences the work, except for the, saying that the work wouldn't exist Mm. And it's the way it did, except for that space. I think like mm. it's it's one of the ingredients that goes into this melting pot, this like stew of everything that's thought about for a performance. And mm. you can't, for me, I can't separate it out. I know that I wanted to write music that would work in a very reverberant space, right? And that um, I mean, we picked that place because it had, was large enough for this huge platform, this mm. square of violinists and speakers. And, um, I don't know. So that's one of those things to me, it's more like an intuitive level of, right. of like, okay. like of digesting the, the place, the mm. sound that it has and, um, and creating something for that. I think that when people walked in there, you automatically felt, okay, this is what I'm going to get. You know, there wasn't a feeling, there was nothing missing out mm. of the equation. And mm. I think that that is really important when you're showcasing new work as well. And when you're showcasing work to the level that you are doing it with 50 violinists, which I think you mentioned earlier, but I don't think people realize <laughs> what a vision that is as well. 50 violinists on the stage in front of you with these huge windows, the the stained glass yeah. windows behind. It was this picture that mm. I think lent itself beautifully to the sound as well, um, which I think is really important yeah, to the, consider. Yeah, the geometry of that piece is really <laughs> important for me. It's this square, this huge floating square mm. of musicians. And, and they're not set up in any kind of hierarchical way it's just space mm. like uh in a traditional orchestra you have your first violin section to the far left and the second violins and the violas and the cellos mm -hmm. and it's sort of like this this sort of musical hierarchy or at least um uh these groupings that are very familiar absolutely. with compartments yeah. and for me i wanted to create a group that was totally distributed in a mm. way that i could write a, a line of music that could be at any corner equally well and it could travel across the group and that that sort of is what became the musical material is like thinking about about this sort of like blurriness in music that mm. you can get from having 50 musicians playing the same kind of material but maybe slightly offset so it sort of blurly blurly travels around mm -hmm. the group it um, did it was like a wave i think mm -hmm. i described it like that in one of in my review it, it did it felt because of the bows going up and down it almost felt it was it was really beautiful i have to say and no matter where you. you sat i it's an absolute pleasure and i'm so glad that i'm talking to you about this just because there is nobody more perfect to chat to about that than the <laughs> man who created it because i think that it's important to say that you're not just making music for violins you had the speakers as the uh, again a layer of sound mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. i would love for you to tell me can you for those that maybe might not know what like a one-bit speaker is, mm -hmm. could you explain maybe the reason why you chose to create that uh, extra layer of, of mm -hmm. sound mm -hmm. and why you chose a speaker as the additional appendage almost yeah, yeah. to that? Yeah. Well, so my background is in, in music and composition and also kind of in math and programming and stuff. But those oh, okay. were sort of separate things for a while. And did you study? Did you study math? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, I did. And um, not I, to say that that makes sense, but you know, yeah, it, it, kind, it, of it, it kind of does. It kind of does. Yeah, it definitely kind of does. So, I um, but when I was writing music, I was like very anti-electronic sound. Yeah, like I grew up listening to electronic music, but I didn't want to have anything to do with like mixing that with the acoustic instruments that I was working with. Like I grew up playing piano and I think about the piano as this like very, there's one right a few feet away from us right there. Like the piano is the, is the embodiment of making mm -hmm. sound in a, in a physical acoustic way. Like you, you press a key down and it hits a string and that mm -hmm. string vibrates and you have then a set of strings for every single pitch that the piano can make. And so it's this very heavy object, very mm -hmm. kind of aware of its physical presence and object. And um, electronic sound for me at least when I was writing didn't have that it didn't have this like sort of physical connection where mm. you could like tap on a on a on a on a yeah, physical object and have and you just sort of know yeah. what that does and um basically when I started working with this lo-fi electronics I started building circuit boards mm. um which connected to the programming side of my thinking um it all suddenly clicked because when you have um, these bare microchips that I work with and you write some very simple code on them that let's say outputs a one and then outputs a zero and mm -hmm. then outputs a one and zero, one, zero, one, zero, and you program it to do that 440 times per second, then it's going one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, turning on and off, on and off, mm -hmm. 400 times, 40 times per second. You connect that to the terminals of a speaker and now the speaker cone moves in and out tracing those ones and zeros and if you're doing that 440 times a second and it makes mm -hmm. a 440 hertz tone which is an a it's like you know it it that's the sound you get from the speaker and that's a one bit waveform it's the it's the sound one bit sound is is the sound basically of just turning on and off the speaker because um when you break it down a speaker is a um a speaker cone mm -hmm. the membrane of the speaker the circle uh, connected to an electromagnet and the electromagnet, you know, traces the path of electricity that comes in. So if you send it on, off, on, off, on, off electricity, then that speaker will turn on and off, on, off, on, off. Cause it's just a motor. Like that's mm. the, the, the guts of a speaker are no different than a lot of other kinds of motors. Like it's a, it's sort of like a solenoid. Uh, it's, it's like a, it's called a linear motor. It's mm -hmm. like a solenoid. It's like the kind of motor you'd expect to be in a door lock or something that would kind of like go in and out and mm. like be engaged or not engaged. And that's, mm. that's what a speaker is. And most music, electronic music or recorded sound or anything is more than just on off. Mm. We think of it like there's 16 Multiple, bit sound, even yes. eight bit sound of early like video game music mm. and stuff is still is working with lots of different values besides just on off. And mm. when you have all those different values, you can trace an audio waveform that might be like some high quality recording of a violinist or it might be like a synthesized sound or whatever. But mm. it's 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 more than just these basic on off true false binary kind of values mm. and and so i fell in love with the binary side of it the really primitive very lo-fi electronic sound because i thought it sounded awesome and mm. it also connected to my math brain <laughs> yeah. and like that's kind of the that's part that makes brain. sense <laughs> um and and i just started I, I yeah i kind of like just dove into that and started writing music just for electronics and releasing it that way and then like you know yeah, you combining mentioned the it on stage board. i know that you did your your noise 
Was it noise patterns? Yeah, there's noise patterns and one bit symphony and one bit music. A few mm -hmm. albums I've released just as as a circuit that you plug into and you listen to the chip. So there's no mediation between anything. You just plug it in. Yeah, exactly. It is incredible in in a sense of you're taking simplicity to a form that a lot of people even you you think it's simple, but seeing that and hearing <laughs> about it is incredibly technical mm -hmm. to be able to pull it off with such a vast amount of sound mm -hmm. so taking just a one bit speaker and creating what you did and i love that you chose the speaker as well as you know the thing that you were going to add on to the violinist and that composition yeah. because the speaker stands for a lot as well yeah you know there's also quite a uh i don't want to sound too mushy but you know a speaker is it's an announcement it's a mm -hmm. broadcast it's a protest it's there's so many things yeah, you, you know, know, and and I th I found I found that very moving the symbolism of a speaker um, yeah. in in that context as well. That's funny. I haven't thought about that so much. I have thought about a different question, which is like when you have a phone, like a you know, like, yes. an, like an iPhone or a smartphone or something. These days, it can be so many different things, mm. and it's almost like that which takes away from its identity. Um, I think about it because I have kids and when, when your kids yeah. look up and you're using your phone, they have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. Like you might be like texting your wife uh, mm -hmm. or you might be like, Ordering you know, food. looking at <laughs> Facebook or something. Yeah. yeah and like, and, and so it doesn't have any real significance. It's all these things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so to you're totally right. To speakers are, yeah. yeah, speakers are like that too. Like, and they, they have sort of cultural references and stuff. And mm -hmm. for me, I just want to use it as a, as an object, as like trying to strip, strip all of that away and just sort of focus on the material, the physics of it or something. And that's really important in the physical, to create music that feels physical because we feel, everything's like streaming now, mm -hmm. you know, and we mm -hmm. don't have that, you know, the fact that you had, you released something on a circuit board that you can actually touch and you maybe nick your finger on a little, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a form of that that's incredibly tactile, mm. that we are, there's definitely a version of that that's missing not to say that it's bad mm -hmm. streaming serves its purpose but putting on a show and making music like you do i think is really it's necessary now so that people don't forget about like what if we just forgot about all of that yeah i, I totally agree I, th I mean i think that this is true in general that like as we have more and more streaming services and listen to music on mp3s mm uh as mp3 is that like we seek the live experience more and more every time yeah. like it's getting it's like needed now to just even just stand next to a person totally although i'm sure people would rather want to be sitting oh, at home i think it's both yeah i think it's both and both, I, yeah. I, I, I like i have these albums on streaming services too it's on spotify yeah and uh yeah so it, it serves its purpose and and i don't want to necessarily control how people consume music because right. you want to listen to music you know every chance you know however you want that's mm. great and that's the promise of technology mm. i just want to maybe make us think about kind of where it's coming from and that there is the live version there is the physical version of that mm. and and yeah I, it's it's really important in performance in my mind that everything is live mm. and that even the the elect the the 50 speakers that are connected to this circuit board that i built for the for the piece that even that even electronic sound is live because there's code that's running it's generating the sound it's mm. not like it's a it's like a, a recorded electronic part like mm. there's there's live synthesis happening and i think that that 
is really it's a subtle element but it's important because it's saying that the violinists and the speakers are all performers in a way that it's that it's it's a thoroughly like live experience and there's things that you can do live that you can't do with a recording like there's one very fundamental thing which is really trivial in a way but it's like when you, something is live, it could go on forever. Yes. Like there's, but but a recording has to have happened, started mm. and ended in the past, and now you have a recording. But when you have something live, there's this open endedness to it where you really mm. don't know the next thing that'll happen. And like, sure, so it's she still natural, yeah, yeah, totally. It's very natural, yeah, yeah. It's still natural, and I think that that's why, thankfully, it will never go away. It's not something that will... Obviously, your experience will change. I definitely think that having a show like yours, where you you are servicing the actual material, from a visual standpoint, do the two go hand in hand of how it looks versus how it sounds? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, as an artist, that for you is also... You're also considering that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think that... I, yeah, I don't think you can separate them. This is something mm. that, as a, as, a, as coming from the sort of contemporary music composed world, like um, this, there, you're always talking about musicians on stage. There's always a layout. There has to be a layout. Mm. And there's always space. So that's part of what, why I put the speakers on on stage with the musicians is because I'm saying like these are sound sources, just like any of the other, mm. you know, musicians, um, and so. To me, then, on top of that, the aesthetic is, is, is important because it, it's part of how you think about space. And I'd like to think that that they're they're integrally connected, you know, that I have to lay these out. And so I'm already thinking about the layout. So mm. I want to do it in, in a sort of geometric or an elegant way or something as opposed to a haphazard way. Because to me, it's like if you think about it, then it becomes an artistic statement mm. no matter what you do do it's just that you have to like engage it to begin with yeah and consider it as no, knowing that it's going to end up as a performance i mm -hmm. think that a lot of people there's different ways that uh, people have their process and how they are creative and do you think that that affects you knowing that it was going to be performed live totally mm -hmm. it reminds me a little bit though too like that as when 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 i'm writing music for musicians to perform mm -hmm. constantly thinking about what they can do and what works on their instrument and stuff so there's always this sort of like uh it's a it's a constraint but i don't really like the word constraint yeah. or limit or whatever limitations mm. because it's more just about finding the character or the identity of the instruments so like like you know and then it feeds into other things too like mm. the electronics can't just be arbitrarily loud because it has to mix with the mm. with the strings and that has to be an acoustic mixing i don't want to like you have to mic every <laughs> single one and be able to mix yes. them artificially at the mixer. I mean, we did yeah. have a little amplification in the concert just because that space is so huge. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that that's all, that's all, that's all part of the sort of like the stuff around the music mm. that is uh, yeah, really, really important to the experience. What role do you think minimalism plays then into music now? I know you mentioned the word contemporary. Do you feel comfy in it? Is is that something that you are constantly seeking and searching to shift and change? Yeah, I mean, I think minimalism is forever on some level. Minimalism to me is just the focus on the processes underneath mm. something and the, and simple the ba simple processes underneath something. Um, I grew up listening to minimalism in music and seeing minimalism in art. And, um, 
I think that it became a very big part of what I think about as music. And it connects to me in terms of like when you think about the laws of physics or chemistry or biology or something like mm. you, you see the world around you as systems that um, are governed by very, very simple rules and things get really messy in the world of like biology, but they're still built upon simple systems. Like mm. we know that the laws of physics have very few kind of like rules and everything comes out of those. Mm. And to me, that's a little bit what minimalism is. It's just, it's, it's, it's um, acknowledging the simple processes that are under, mm. underneath all of this and, and focusing on them and saying these things are interesting and poetic on their own and sort mm. of in this profound way. Um, and so I think of, I do think of, well, I don't know if I'm, I, I'm definitely, minimalism is very close to, to close, close hand, close by when I'm, yeah. when I'm creating. And I, I, cause it also then connects to, to the coding side of things where yes. whenever I write a line of music, I'm also thinking about how that'll represent itself in terms of numbers and the score and stuff, the digital, the digital score the and code when you say minimalist it's not not it's not that it isn't complex that that's i mm -hmm. think what a lot of people uh get wrong also mm -hmm. just the word simplistic it, it it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of brain power yeah, and you, algorithms and a lot of effort put into it totally i feel like that there's such a misconception about it which is mm. fine because that is what people like you are here for to you know debunk yeah, I think that you don't want to ever have the complexity uh distract you like it should never like it can become complex mm. but if, if if you can see the structure underneath it somehow then then you can understand the whole picture it's that when it becomes sense. too complex that suddenly you're pushed far away and it becomes something you don't understand mm. then that's to me also like it modern, takes over it takes mm. over it separates you it's like mm. our technology today that we don't really understand how it works <laughs> yeah. it's like they're all, i have no idea how this computer works exactly yeah, that's where like but, but i mean it's a, it's like a it's simple a machine working, on some yeah. level it's just like we've 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 let go we've been pushed so far away that we like don't have anything to hold on to anymore so th yeah. i think that's true in in, in musical complexity mm. too you said that you grew up around minimalist music and art was music something that you always wanted to do was that something that just kind of struck i know you said that you studied maths and computer science where does where does music fit in there yeah i think i i think i always wanted to do music on some level like mm. since i was a little kid and my parents were very supportive of that oh, like it's amazing yeah totally amazing <laughs> i mean i like my parents were calling me a composer when i was like you know nine years old or something oh, and so your parents uh, yeah. sound amazing. no totally and uh, but uh, but yeah I, it worked out great for me um and it, and it, it sort of acknowledged that it's a thing that it's something that's kind of in a weird way, maybe bigger than you, than you are mm. or something, that it's like this art form, mm. this thing that you, it's like an ideal that you strive towards. And, um, yeah, but it's all about you too at the same time. It's not Creating, like yeah. to, to, to take you out of the equation. It's connected. And so, yeah, I definitely grew up with that like as something that I could be or mm. that's something that maybe I was already or something. I don't know. Oh, you, I mean, they called you a composer, so you... Yeah, you're... well, that sounds really dangerous, though, too. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure what my approach will be with my kids. But, um, yeah, I think, like, uh, uh, and my dad's an artist, and my mom's in the art world, too. And, like, um, That's so... That's wonderful. Yeah, I th and I think it, it, 
at, you know, it just, it, it acknowledged it, that it was a thing, um, that it's a, it's a I think meaningful that you can thing. also create in your own way. I think that that's important, I'm sure, to you, is that there, there are ways and systems in place that make you feel like you can't change them or mm-hmm. maybe you can't tack onto them, you know. And I think that the way that you've done it is that you are manipulating things that are within your control that other people might be but nervous to. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a beautiful voice and feel nervous to explore production and the little bits of instruments that can help that voice be better totally you know and i remember i totally remember like before i started getting into electronics Mm. this kind of idea of like what am i what do i have to say and Mm -hmm. i'm like i I remember thinking that i was writing cool music or something that was good music and that i was doing just fine or something and then (laughs) and then when i started working with electronics or thinking of it, it as this mindset uh, and it was sort of like this thinking like, oh, I think, I think I figured something out. I think like, this is, this is my thing. This mm. is what I want to think about this is really like a thing now. It's not just writing music. Mm. It's like, it's almost like the electronics, like there's an aesthetic c- component, like, yes, it's music and I want to write beautiful music. I want to write music that affects me on a, on a emotional level and stuff, mm. but all of, a lot of what we're talking about has nothing to do with music. It has yes, to, like the, it's the like outside of, of outside of it. Absolutely, um, yeah. And, and that's, so that's great to to say, yeah. Yeah. So if anything is like that, which I think is more about our understanding of the world, of like of the technology that's mm-hmm. around us, which is incredibly important with how in terms of how we how we live our lives now. It's sort of like those things became the meaningful part of my music. Mm. Um, at least on on the sort of intellectual side. Mm. I would never have expected you to be any other way. And I love that (laughs) you are considering things that people as an audience consider. As you said, it's like you you want to listen to music that makes you feel and makes you moved. Mm -hmm. At a rock concert, you know, you feel kind of beholden to the system. Mm -hmm. There's a set way that things are laid out when you start to actually look at the why of it all, yeah. why is this even happening? I think that you can get to better answers that can fulfill you as well. Totally. Yeah. yeah I, I definitely think about that. I hate, I hate the idea that at every rock or electronic music or whatever show, like the traditional shows, you want to get as close to the stage as possible. As possible. It's just miserable up there <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't You're even, mess, it doesn't even sound good up there, but that's, yes, that's I, the sort of, that's the frame of reference we have though, because like not all music has to think about this stuff too. Mm. You know, exactly. like yeah, it's, it's, it has it, its that's place a good point. and yeah. I'd like it to be, you know, like the buffet of, you know, <laughs> things that make you think I don't, I surely wouldn't want everyone's musical approach to be like this by any means and like i do want to just yeah get lost in the music Mm. sometimes and not think about Mm. anything more heady so i don't know i I like to think that there's just a combination of all of the above but it would be cool to have concert venues set up in such a way that you didn't have to like yeah be wedged in that way but i think they're creating that and people are going to ask for that after the show i'm in just this sort of like um it's the word that comes to mind is devastated (laughs) in a way because it's just like so much of me went into that and it was so uh it was a big project Mm. it's just like for me personally a very big project and um I think I just sort of just crashed after the show and I I got a lot of good feedback Mm. 
but on some level, I don't know if I like what I heard or not because I was just like, so, um, I'm not like, functioning. Yeah, yeah. This whole, it's just sort of like a chapter of my life just ended in a way. But it's the best word. <laughs> it is, it, but devastatingly beautiful in, in the same thing. Cause it's like this thing that's done now for that moment, mm-hmm. like that premiere, you know, nobody had ever seen that before. You had never put that show on for people before in that space. But I can imagine that that's exactly why you do this, so that you can constantly be devastated. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, yeah, that was that was that was something. And yeah, there are these moments. And and what I love about being, you know, in the arts and music or whatever is that it like there's there's always something new next. Um, and I just had this show at St. John the Divine in New York with this 50 violent piece I've been wanting to do forever. And like, that's never happened to me before. And, um, I don't know what, like, I just, I'm so, I feel so grateful Mm. that my career perpetually gives me these, these incredible experiences. Mm. Um, and yeah, I feel kind of like just lucky about that. Were your parents at the show as well? Yeah, my mom, my dad, my grandmother. Oh yeah. my gosh, I'm sure. And they, I'm sure yeah. they absolutely loved it as well. I think they were that. quite proud. <laughs> quite. <laughs> it was a production. So what what happens now? Are you releasing the that that piece of music? How are you releasing it? Yeah, in an ideal world, I'll um I'll record it in the next year or something like that. Um hopefully uh um another performance will come together. Uh, it's a big project, so it's not the easiest thing to book, but, um, mm. uh, I've been talks already about that and that would be the right time to record it because something like that too, I want to kind of go back and revisit and tweak and change and stuff. And, 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 and it's in my mind, it's kind of dangerous to record something like that too quickly because it, it locks you in. Cause that's the, that's the finished thing, right? Mm. Is if, if you never record it, it can always evolve or something. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like bands that tour forever and they say that by the time the end of their tour, they know the music better than they ever better did before. They, and yeah. so so with this, the violinist might likely change, but Doug Perkins, who's conducting it, he'll be sort of, I think of him as the constant in a way between mm. these performances because he's, he's like the ears of the group and he's the one who comes with the piece as we do it. At the end of the day, one funny thing about the classical music world is that there are these compositions that get sort of set in stone at some point. Mm. And then the music, the score stays the same, and then it's up to the musicians to kind of bring new life to into it each life. time. Yeah. And I kind of like that, 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 like... Consequence Podcast Network.